You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We're coming up on the holiday season, the end of the year, and the two-year anniversary of the Redacted History Podcast. Now would be a great time to revisit my favorite episode of the Redacted History Podcast. If you're a Redacted History OG, you've heard this episode before, but you probably want to hear it again. And if you're a new listener, buckle up. This is the story of Mary Bowser, an enslaved woman in Virginia who, once she got her freedom and was educated, she came back to Virginia to form a spy ring with her former enslaver to spy on behalf of the Union Army in the Civil War. Let's get to the show. What if I told you that climate change wasn't real? Those wildfires, those rising temperatures, <laughs> you know, those melting ice caps. Yeah, those are a figment of your imagination. I'm just kidding. That would be a lie. Now, what if I told you there once lived an enslaved black woman who was freed, educated, and became a spy for the Union Army and played a part in infiltrating the Confederacy in the midst of the Civil War, providing valuable information for the Union Army. And her partner in crime was her former slave master. Well, that, that would be the truth. This is the story of Mary Bowser. Welcome to the Redacted History Podcast. So, first off, happy Women's History Month. I took a two-week hiatus from releasing any new podcast content because I wanted to produce an episode that did Women's History Month justice. I wanted to produce an episode that told the story of a woman who has not only been forgotten throughout history, but someone who inspired me as well, and I hope she inspires you too. Now, most of those two weeks were spent reading and researching because Mary Bowser was, for lack of better wording, a ghost not just in the afterlife, but while she was amongst the living as well. Seldom were the lives of enslaved folk documented. And Mary was also a woman, so had it not been for the first-hand accounts and the extensive work of historians, we would never know what little we do about this amazing woman and her story. I also thought it was important because when we talk about the Civil War, when we talk about the 1800s, who do we, who do we talk about? We talk about Jefferson Davis, loser, Robert E. Lee, super loser, we talk about Abraham Lincoln and how he was put on a T-shirt watching Disney on Ice. We talk about Andrew Jackson and all of these white men, but we never talk about the heroes of the Civil War that were people of color. More importantly, the heroes of the Civil War who were women. We talk about Harriet Tubman, and yes, she led the Underground Railroad, but we don't talk about how she was also a spy, how she was also a nurse. So that's why I wanted to talk about Mary Bowser today. This episode is part one of a two-part series because there is a lot to go over. So, sorry, I know we all want, you know, everything at once in this age of consumption and the internet. But don't be mad at me, give me some grace. Now, there aren't many pictures of Mary. A lot of the pictures on Google or historical websites that claim to be Mary actually aren't her at all. So for this story, I want you to close your eyes and imagine a darker-skinned black girl with big, curly black hair. Now, like I said, little information was recorded on Mary's life in her earliest years, and she basically fell off the face of the earth after the Civil War. However, comma, the documented period between 1839 and 1865 is a cinematic movie experience, and I'm going to do my best to give it to you. Mary Bowser was born 
Mary Jane Richards in May of 1839 in Richmond, Virginia. The Bowser name comes later, so just bear with me. Richmond was a very interesting place at this time, mid-1800s. It wasn't too far south where folks considered slavery to be at its harshest. Think Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, even a lot of parts of Georgia. And it was about 250 miles away from Philadelphia, the nation's most popular free city. A city that had abolished slavery in 1780 and had a thriving free black population. And due to its proximity to the north, the Richmond economy reflected northern economy. So you'd see less plantation work and more in-house labor, hardware, blacksmiths, etc. But don't think slavery was any less harsh than what we like to refer to as house slaves, right? Mary was born to who we'll call Minerva and Lewis. Not much is known about her parents, especially when and where they were born. She was born into what many would call a unique situation. You see, her mother and father did not live together. They were both enslaved, but by different masters. Mary's mother, Minerva, was owned by the Van Lu family, a rich family whose deceased patriarch was the former mayor of Philadelphia from 1796 to 1798, and he moved the family to the Richmond area in 1906. Mary's mother was enslaved directly by Eliza Baker Van Lu and John Van Lu, who owned a thriving hardware business. They resided in the house, the mansion, with their children Elizabeth, who they would sometimes refer to as Bet, and young John Van Lu, and over a half a dozen enslaved black people, two of which were Mary and her mother. Now, where was Mary's father, you may ask? He was also in Richmond working as a blacksmith under the enslavement of a man by the name of Mahan. Mary and her mother were permitted by the Van Loos to spend Sundays with Lewis, who had his own cabin. Once Mary was old enough to work, she was put to work in the big house alongside her mother, cleaning and waiting hand and foot on the Van Loos. Mary was a very inquisitive young girl. Her mother taught her from a young age, as early as four, that she must always be aware of her surroundings. If you're doing a chore around the house, serving the white folk at a dinner party or anything of the sort, keep your ears and your eyes open like a spy, because you never know when you would hear some information that would be useful to you down the line. When Mary was around five or six, it was discovered by her owners and her mother that she had an eidetic or photographic memory, and this would be something she would use to her advantage many a time. However, when they found out about Mary's memory, they thought it meant she could read, which she could, but she could never admit that because of, as you probably know, it was illegal in slave states for black folk to be literate. So, Mistress Van Lu made Mary promise to never tell of her gift or she would be taken to Richmond's whipping post to be punished for the entire town to see. But, in secret, Elizabeth Van Lu, the daughter, would teach Mary how to read in the coming years. The Van Lu's had a very interesting family dynamic. Mistress Van Lu was a very stuck-up socialite from the North who wanted the finer things in life and very much so enjoyed the uh, employment of her workers, as she called them. John was the typical firstborn son who was eager to take over the family business when it was his turn. And Elizabeth was the rebellious radical. Born around 1819, she was sent to Philadelphia in her youth to study at a Quaker school. You see, Quakers were amongst the first denomination in the United States to fiercely detest slavery and form abolitionist groups, groups that spread out throughout the North. And as you can imagine, Elizabeth, growing up in the North, went to the North and realized that slavery was whack. 
And she brought those sentiments back down south with her. When she came back to Richmond, she would become an outspoken member of the family on behalf of abolition. The family dynamic began to turn its gears when in the fall of 1844, old Master Van Lu killed over and kicked the bucket and went down to, I mean, up to heaven. Some years later, it was Christmas 1850, and Elizabeth Van Lu invited Mary's father, Louis, to Christmas dinner, which was odd. That night, the table had been set, the food was prepared, and the enslaved stood around the table, ready to serve their masters. The instructions that they got prior to dinner were that 11 plates were to be set at the big table. When the Van Loo's arrived for dinner, Elizabeth asked that all eight enslaved folk joined her, her mother, and her brother for dinner. Now, there were eight enslaved people in the house, so the math was mathing. Mary, her mother, her father, and the other five enslaved took the seats at the table they would never dare even begin to think about sitting at under normal circumstances. Forks nervously scraped plates for the next 10 minutes until Elizabeth Van Loo speaks up. She said, This year, I celebrate Christmas in my own right, for my mother has consented to sell me her slaves so that I may set them free. The black folk at the table stared at her with their mouths agape full of food. Free? They were, they were really free? That easy? Well, yeah. After Master Van Lu died, he left his children inheritances, and with her money, Elizabeth chose to buy her mother's slaves and free them. And the plan was kind of easy. Elizabeth would draw up freedom papers for her enslaved people. They would remain employed to her for several months so as to earn enough money to support themselves when they moved to a free state. Mary and her family were elated, but as usual, when things seem like they are too good to be true, they probably are. You see, Mary and her mother had their freedom, but her father did not. Elizabeth said she approached his master and he refused to sell because good blacksmiths are hard to come by. And they could only stick around as free folk, but for so long. Because Virginia law said that enslaved black people had a year to leave the state or risk being arrested and sold right back into slavery. Many times when you were sold back into slavery, you were split up from your family. One of the many, many inhumane laws put into place to further dehumanize black people. So Mary and her family had a choice to make. She and her mother could take their freedom, head north, knowing they'd never see her father again. Didn't feel like a great idea. How about head north and ask him to come with them, knowing he'd be hunted like a dog until he was captured and forcibly taken back to Virginia. And they would probably be taken, too. And this is where his master would either cripple him or kill him. Yeah, no. However, Mary's mother came up with a different plan. She enlisted the financial support of the eager-to-help Elizabeth Van Loo, who was taking this whole abolitionist thing super seriously. Mary's parents were less concerned about their freedom and more concerned with how Mary could lead a safe and worthwhile life. So it was arranged for Mary to be sent to a school for girls in Philadelphia. She would have boarding and a monthly allowance from Elizabeth. Mary's mother would stay behind with her father and have her freedom papers redrawn every month or so until the day came that her father was freed. And who knew when or if that would ever happen. But hey, love makes you do stuff. So, in 1851, at the age of 11, Mary hugged her mother and was put on a train to Philadelphia. Mary spent her entire adolescence and some young adult years in Philadelphia. She was there from 1851 to 1859. 
She went to school where she excelled and became best friends with the local undertaker's daughter. She met an entire network of free Philadelphia black folk. It was her time in Philadelphia that would shape Mary's views on freedom and slavery forever. And see that freedom wasn't all it really cracked up to be, because in the eyes of the white person, there was a good chance you still meant nothing to them, whether they were abolitionists or not. And that illustrates what life must have been like for free black folk for the next 100 years. Yeah, I'm free, but I can't eat where I want, sit where I want, look at who I want, or use the bathroom where I want. I'm free, but at what cost? Throughout her time in Philadelphia, she built a closer relationship with Elizabeth Van Loo, her former master. Elizabeth seemed to really be all aboard the abolitionist train and wanted what was best for Mary and to continue to oppose the institution of slavery in the South. Elizabeth even took more of her inheritance and helped free more black people in Richmond, Virginia. As a teenager, Mary joined the Philadelphia Anti-Slavery Society. It was an interracial organization of mostly healthy white women who had group discussions, fundraisers for the abolitionist cause. Um, that was it. Mary quickly learned that the society and groups like this existed just for people to say, oh, yeah, I was in that. You know, I'm down for the cause. Super similar to someone today plopping Black Lives Matter brown fist emoji in their bio and calling it a day. But Mary wanted more. She wanted to be instrumental in the abolishment of slavery, but she wasn't quite sure how. White people felt like as long as they were able to do things to give themselves moral victories, then their job was done. And this confused Mary greatly. And furthermore, it kind of scared her because as long as we had this pitter-patter, this really slow progression, Mary might be dead before any real change was ever made. But there were events that helped light a fuse for Mary to break free and really take action. The first event being her mother dying when she was around 16 years old. You see, the last time that Mary had ever seen her mother was right before she got on the train in 1851 to head from Richmond, Virginia to Philadelphia. Mary's mother got her freedom and never got to taste it. She chose to stay behind in the hopes that her husband would get his. But a fever took her before that. Mary couldn't help but feel guilty and more determined than ever to free her father, whose master still refused to sell. What was her father thinking? How alone did he feel in the moment? You see, Mary had been communicating with her father over the years, but it was only through Elizabeth Van Lu. They would write letters back and forth and Elizabeth would, you know, read the letters to her father and then write down whatever her father wanted to say back to Mary because he was illiterate. He hadn't seen his daughter in 10 years and his wife of over 20 years was gone. And Mary was more determined than ever to at least get back to him. Next, Mary became a member of the Underground Railroad. Remember when I said that she became best friends with the Undertaker's daughter? Well, he was one of many pawns in the North, both black and white. Gaped black slaves would stow away in coffins and be driven to freedom from the South to Philadelphia by other abolitionists who were usually white because who would question a white man on the road? It was meaningful to Mary to help enslaved black folk experience the same breath of freedom, the same jubilation, the same realization that she got to experience for the last decade. It was through her Underground Railroad work that she met an enslaved black girl who we don't know her name. Uh, she helped her escape from Richmond, Virginia to New York. The girl was actually being sexually abused by her master and wound up killing him with a brick to the head and was on the run. This was both eye-opening and a full-circle moment for Mary, who was helping a girl her age escape from the same place that once bound her in chains. 
And lastly, Mary was completely radicalized by the events that took place at Harper's Ferry in 1859. This was where John Brown, a white abolitionist, led a failed slave rebellion in Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. This event rocked the nation completely and was a major catalyst tipping point towards the Civil War. A slave rebellion sparked true fear. What if all of the blacks rose up and sought revenge? Mary was mostly inspired and convicted by the death of a man named Dangerfield Newby, a black man who assisted John Brown because, you see, Dangerfield's wife and his children They were still held in slavery while he was free. He needed a thousand dollars, so say her master, to buy his wife and his children's freedom. He brought seven hundred dollars to the master and said, hey, this is all I got. It takes years for a slave to earn even a hundred dollars. The master looked at him and said, that's not a thousand. So the price is going to go up to fifteen hundred. So Dangerfield assisted John Brown. However, unfortunately, Dangerfield was killed during the Harper's Ferry Rebellion and his body was left in the street for a whole day while it was mutilated by angry white people and feasted on by animals. And then after that, it was thrown with other bodies into an unmarked grave. News of this spread like wildfire. John Brown was eventually found guilty and was hanged on December 2nd, 1859, the first person executed for treason in the history of the United States. Although his rebellion was a failure, it was the sign that abolitionists nationwide needed. Shame that it took a white man rising up for people to truly give a damn, but such is life, I suppose. Mary saw the dissent and infighting taking over the nation. We have the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. We have slave rebellions. We have black massacres, bleeding Kansas, and the violent civil confrontations in the Kansas Territory. And also the absolutely terrible string of U.S. presidents we'd see in the middle of the 19th century, all the way from Andrew Jackson in the 1820s, all the way up to 1859, where we had James Buchanan, who said, hey, I'm the president, I'm going to do absolutely nothing. The country was almost at its breaking point. It was basically a twig at this point. And Mary knew that when that fracture finally happened, she couldn't just sit idly by. She wanted to be a part of the fight to free her people and her father or die trying. So she devised a plan to risk her life and her freedom and go back to Richmond, Virginia. There was nothing left for her in Philadelphia. You see, there were riots that spread all throughout because of the Harper's Ferry Rebellion. And through that riot, Mary's house and her belongings actually burned down. And this made it easier for her to leave. And perhaps she should have never left Virginia in the first place. Maybe she would have got to spend more time with her mother. Maybe all three of them could have got their freedom eventually. Who knows? Mary was painfully aware that her going back to Richmond could mean recapture or death. But she needed to see her father, and she needed to speak to Elizabeth Van Loo. Hmm, so where were we? Oh yeah, Mary Bowser was born Mary Jane Richards into slavery in Richmond, Virginia in 1839. Around the age of 11, her master's daughter bought her, immediately freed her, and sent her to Philadelphia to be educated. This is where she did work for the Underground Railroad, lost her mother, and watched the country slowly fall into the depths of hell, and realized that even though she was free, black people couldn't be free until they were all free. This is part two of the story 
I'm Mary Bowser, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. So, happy Women's History Month again, and welcome back. Last week, we dove headfirst into the story of one of the most courageous women to ever exist, Mary Bowser. Our story picks back up in 1859 after the hanging of John Brown and the events at Harper's Ferry, a failed slave rebellion that aided in setting the tone for what was to come in the Civil War in a couple of years. There were widespread riots and uprisings of angry northern white people in Philadelphia. The people whom Mary knew hated black people, but not this much. During her time in Philadelphia, she spent a lot of time with rich and affluent white people, mostly white women, who bore attitudes of, you know, those black people, they're cool, as long as they're not equal. So she decided it was best to go back to Richmond to be with her father and to discuss steps towards becoming an abolitionist with her former owner, Elizabeth Van Loo, even though she knew that it would be the riskiest attempt ever. Now, if Mary had it her way, she would have left Richmond right then and there. But she waited a year to see how the election of 1860 would play out. Mary and a lot of black people were really hopeful that Senator William Seward would get the Republican nomination to then run in the 1860 election. He was a founder of the original Republican Party. And before y'all start, the Republican Party in the mid-19th century actually opposed slavery, and the Democrats did not. But there was an ideological switch between 1865 and 1936. So next time a Karen or Kenneth starts yapping at you about this online, put them on game. Anyway... William Seward, on paper, was the perfect person in the eyes of a black person, including Mary. He heavily supported abolition and immigration. And of course, that meant he couldn't win. Abraham Lincoln won because the platform he ran on promised to not interfere with slavery, but that slavery also wouldn't expand to the West. I wonder how that turned out. But we'll get back to Abe later. In order to get to Richmond, Mary had to enlist the help of old friends from the Underground Railroad. It's not like she could just get on a horse and ride down there herself. She got the help from an Irish abolitionist named Thomas McNiven, who will be very important to this story. McNiven was a harsh-talking Irishman who worked as an Underground Railroad transporter. His job was typically to transport slaves through Virginia and the Carolinas up to the north, sometimes as far as New York or Michigan. Now keep up with me here. McNiven connected Mary to the cousin of Mary's former school teacher, a free black man named Wilson Bowser. Wink, wink, wink. Wilson was a barber living in Richmond who did some side work transporting runaway enslaved folk from Virginia to freedom and would eventually become Mary's husband, thus her becoming Mary Bowser. You see, you see, you see how that worked out? Once Mary was back in Richmond, she wasted no time meeting up with her father, who was not very excited to see her. The years had not been kind to him at all. He was aging terribly due to the harsh conditions of the blacksmith shop he worked in. His owner was still making him work six days a week, only getting Sunday off. He was suffering from rheumatism and arthritis and a broken heart. It also wasn't helping that her father was forced to sleep in like a five by five shed in the back of the property. It also hurt her that her father wasn't happy to see her. Because he felt like she wasted her opportunity for freedom. You're up in Philadelphia, you're learning, you're being educated, you're, you're politicking with all these white people, and you chose to come back to the South while we're about to go to war. Okay, sure. 
Now, someone who was happy to see her was Elizabeth Van Loo, the quick-witted abolitionist who more than a decade earlier had purchased seven slaves from her mother and freed them immediately, two of those slaves being Mary and her mother Minerva. She spent much of the inheritance from her father's death to free her slaves and more slaves throughout Richmond. But Elizabeth knew that her work was just getting started. She knew, just as well as Mary knew, that the country was about to fall flat on its face very, very soon. And that all started with South Carolina. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast episode is brought to you by Patreon. If you want to support me and the podcast and what we do here, go to patreon.com forward slash blackout, B-L-A-C-K-K-O-U-T, and you'll get access to merch drops, voted on what we do on TikTok, as well as the podcast, as well as live streams and many other bonuses. Let's get back to the show. Abraham Lincoln was elected president on November 6th, 1860, and South Carolina said deuces. They succeeded almost immediately from the Union on December 20th, 1860, and Mississippi, Georgia, and Alabama all followed suit soon thereafter. Three states that I would absolutely expect that from, by the way, and other southern states were ready. And of course, when all this was getting ready to happen, the sitting president, James Buchanan, did absolutely nothing. He, he, he was a puppet. He was, like I said, the end of the string of terrible presidents from all the way from Andrew Jackson in the 1820s up to him in 1859. And Mary knew it was only a matter of time before Virginia did its own succession. Mary saw the Union like a grease fire and the leadership of the nation chose to just douse it with water. The Missouri Compromise, the Compromise of 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, etc., etc., etc. And any time there were any kind of slave uprisings, uh, think Nat Turner, think John Brown, they were quickly silenced, white panic ensued, and the status quo was quickly gone back to. In the spring of 1861, the Virginia Succession Convention was held to determine whether the state would leave the Union or not. Mary attended this convention and found that it was just a bunch of old white guys babbling about their own interests. She grew so impatient with the back and forth that one night during the convention, she wrote a letter to a succession sentiment paper called The Inquirer. The note urged Virginia to basically shut up and go to war. She signed the note under a fake name, Virginia Veritas. Mary's thought process was that maybe if she helped encourage the war and got folk talking about it, the quicker it would come and the quicker slavery would end. Here's a quote from a succession newspaper called the Charleston Mercury. The issue before the country is the extension of slavery. The southern states are now in the crisis of their fate. And if we read about the signs of the times, nothing is needed for our deliverance. But that ball of revolution be set in motion. I just feel like that was kind of dramatic, but whatever. So basically what was happening was you have all these southern states that are sweaty and ready, willing to go, succeeding left and right, and Virginia is kind of dragging its feet. And just about as soon as the delegates casted their vote to succeed in Virginia, the Confederate flag was raised over Virginia and the Confederate capital was moved to Richmond. 
and on April 12, 1861, Fort Sumter was attacked and the Civil War had officially begun. Mary knew that this meant either the beginning of what could lead to her new life and the new life of all the black people across the nation. She would be a freed woman, for real this time, with her freed father, for real this time, or it could lead to the beginning of the end. Living in Richmond caused Mary to experience a lot of the realities of war, just how living in Philadelphia caused her to experience the true sentiments that white people had towards black people, enslaved or freed, and just how living in slavery in Richmond the first time caused her to experience the real realities of slavery. As the war began, people grew discontented in the city. Small lines began to be drawn, the economy changed, and reality set in. After the first Battle of Bull Run, where 35,000 Union soldiers marched to take Richmond and lost, Mary saw Confederate corpses being unloaded from trains while their families, wives, sons, daughters, parents, screamed in agony. No one wins in war. Around this time, Mary spent a lot of time with Wilson and a lot of time bonding with her father on Sundays because that's when his master gave him a day off. And it was right around this time that Mary and Wilson officially tied the knot and became husband and wife, and they were living a very modest and happy life-ish. You know, there was still the anxiety of war and whether slavery would be abolished or not. You know, just normal things. At this point, since she was back in Richmond, Mary had to pose as a slave again, abiding by curfews and things of the sort. In comes Elizabeth Van Lu. Right after the Battle of Bull Run, Elizabeth got intel that there were Union soldiers being held in tobacco factories. They were being kept off of death records and starved. Elizabeth had a horse carriage of provisions that she wished to take to these soldiers and wanted Mary's help. So Elizabeth, with Mary posing as her slave servant, went to a tobacco factory where dozens of Union soldiers were being held, used her whiteness to get past the guards, and made it inside. As they were passing out food and water to the prisoners, Mary stumbled upon a man who said, Someone else can have my rations. Can you just get a message to my family? His family was from the deep north and, of course, had no clue of his whereabouts. So Mary, thinking on her feet, bends down, hands the man a book and says, Take this book, but be careful. My mistress is quick to notice any marks inside of it. Any marks at all. He made markings in the book and covertly returned the book back to Mary. She raced home and checked the markings from the man. The man developed a code that Mary was able to easily decipher. She found out his name was Timothy and that his family was from Augusta, Maine. Here's what the code looked like and feel free to play along on a piece of paper or the notes app in your phone. The sentence said, there is one mind of this history. He took the word one and crossed through it completely. He took the beginning letter of every word and underlined it. And then he also underlined the Y in the word history. So now if you take all the underlined letters, what does it say? Timothy. His name was Timothy. Mary felt so proud and didn't realize that this was her first real act of espionage. She was a spy. Mary and Elizabeth continued to visit the prisons without Elizabeth ever knowing what Mary was doing. Mary had developed a system through the prison where Timothy would collect names, addresses, and more from other prisoners. Mary would take this information every night and create her own code that was kind of in line with what Timothy had already created. She would then smuggle these letters to our favorite Irishman, 
Thomas McNiven, who would then smuggle the information north to the families of the prisoners. Word quickly got out that two Richmond women were assisting Union soldiers in the war prisons. Luckily for Mary, race wasn't specified in the gossip. When Elizabeth Van Loo got word of the gossip, Mary was afraid she would panic and end the missions. But she clearly didn't know Elizabeth. Elizabeth welcomed this and began plans to further their work and begin a spy ring of sorts. Mary said to Elizabeth, Attracting new noise means attracting trouble. Are you not worried? All it takes is a few folk to go form a mob, and if they come up here to your house, God knows what could happen. Elizabeth responded with, I would like to see them try. I am proud to have these uncouth rebels know all that we are doing for the Union. Elizabeth made some minor tweaks to how Mary was getting her messages up north. Instead of having McNiven take the messages and make long journeys on horseback up through Virginia, she would instead ride the messages herself to a farm outside of Richmond where she had abolitionist allies. The messages would then be sent down the James River. This was a better system because Thomas McNiven riding up and down through and out through Virginia wasn't really the best idea with war going on. There were federal and union blockades everywhere, and all it would take was for him to be caught and questioned by the wrong Confederate soldier. And then, boom, everything goes to hell. Elizabeth supplied Mary with a specific kind of paper, and they devised a solid code to be used so that the messages were ever to be intercepted by the wrong party. They wouldn't be caught. Soon, people of Richmond found out that the cost of war was steep. Overpopulation and starvation riddled the city. Lots of folks thought that the war would be over within a couple of months. But it was quickly realized that this was a several years long war, at the very least, that they had signed up for. As Mary continued her work with Elizabeth in the prisons, she was shocked to find out that there were boys as young as 15 years old that had been captured. And she wondered how many more boys didn't even survive long enough to be captured. Mary spent the sixth anniversary of her mother's death in the late winter of 1862 at her grave. She felt like this was such a chaotic time in her life that maybe her mother could speak to her and give her a sign. That evening, she left the grave to walk back home and could feel someone following her. There was a presence behind her. She knew it was a man, but she did not know who it was. Quickly, as she sped up her pace, an arm reached out from the shadows and grabbed her. She looked back, and it was McNiven, Thomas McNiven. McNiven had been stuck in Richmond more often than not because the ongoing war outside of Richmond and in D.C. caused him to have to pause a lot of his underground railroad work. So in the meantime, he had been masquerading as a slave owner around Richmond, politicking with the other masters and rich folk alike to collect intel on Confederate happenings. And in this act, he stumbled upon the info that Jefferson Davis, the Confederate president, and his family were moving his direct headquarters to Richmond, Virginia. McNiven told Mary, I have some use for you. Mary said, nah, I'm already working in the prisons with Elizabeth. McNiven said, no, Elizabeth can do that work by herself. This job is reserved for a black girl with genius intellect. Bingo, that's you. Jefferson Davis and his wife, Verena, had put out an ad in the Inquirer newspaper for a maid and a servant girl. McNiven, still posing as a slaveholder, took the ad and rendered his slave, Mary, to their service. The plan was for Mary to infiltrate the Davis residence and give any information she could back to McNiven to be used to the Union Army for the to be used for the Union Army against the Confederates. Mary wasn't too keen with McNiven's acting as a slaveholder, but kept her mind on the bigger prize. Wilson also wasn't too keen to the idea, but hey, you gotta do what you gotta do, and he realized who he had married. 
Wilson agreed to help pick up the slack on helping the transport of anything confidential to be transported up north while still occasionally helping out on the Underground Railroad. So there you have it, a four-person, ragtag spy team. Elizabeth Van Loo operating the Confederate prisons, McNiven and Wilson working as transporters, and Mary in the house of Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. Over the next two years, Mary worked in the Davis household, looking after his annoying children, scrubbing floors, and waiting on the hand and foot of his wife, Verena. It reminded her of her early years at the Van Loo household, waiting on these rich white women as they exchanged secrets over dinner. It was around this time that Mary's father, Louis, contracted smallpox and passed away alone in a colors-only infirmary. Now Mary had lost one of the reasons she came back to Richmond, and this ignited a fire in her to keep up the work that she was doing so that she, so that she could play a part in ending slavery. While serving in the Confederate household, Mary, of course, did not go by the name Mary. She went by the name Molly. And it wasn't long before Mary found her first piece of information that would be useful to the Union Army. So she was working in the house with other slave women who, you know, they worked as a maid crew. They would, you know, clean, serve dinners, the same thing that she did in the Van Loo household. Whenever there was downtime or time that she could sneak away, she would sneak into Jefferson Davis's office. And this is when she found her first piece. She found a correspondence from the Gosport Naval Yard to Jefferson Davis. It read, Mr. President, the CSS Virginia sits in Norfolk, fully clad in iron, awaiting only coal before she attacks a Union fleet at the mouth of the James River. Our naval men look forward to their historic voyage on behalf of the Confederacy. Mary took this information and gave it to McNiven, who tried to pay her for it, but she refused, saying, I'm no mercenary. Whatever I do in the Davis household is to end slavery. Some of Mary's best intel came from the mouth of Judah Benjamin, a Confederate cabinet member who spent his downtime at the Davis household gossiping with First Lady Verena. Through a gossip session, Mary learned that the CSS Virginia had attacked three different Union ships, but was battled to a draw by the U.S. Mo- but was battled to a draw by the USS Monitor, who was able to sail down from New York in battle. They were able to sail down in battle because of certain intel that they had got that had worked. Mary knew she wanted to continue to do more, but she needed to be careful. Spying was more dangerous as ever. There was actually another spy ring working out of Richmond, and one of their head spies, Timothy Webster, and one of their head spies, a white man named Timothy Webster, was caught. And he ended up being the first American spy hanged in almost 100 years. Over the course of the next couple of years, Mary bided her time in the Davis household, siphoning information and intel related to Confederate casualty rates, battle plans for Vicksburg and Gettysburg. She was able to get information for shipments and weapon deliveries. And she was also able to watch the Confederate army whittle away and dwindle and lose their confidence through the eyes and words of Judah Benjamin and Jefferson Davis. There were even rumors that the intelligence that Mary helped deliver aided Elizabeth Van Loo in instigating the Libby Prison break. Libby Prison was a Confederate prison where Union soldiers were housed and 100 prisoners escaped in February of 1864. Mary Bowser in the Civil War gives one of a first-person view into the experience of a black person during this war. You have the Confederates in the South that, of course, want to keep the institution of slavery. You have the white folk in the North who are cool with black folk being free but not equal. Take the New York City draft riots, for example, where working-class white New Yorkers were enraged at Congress's decision to draft men into the war to fight for the freedom of black people. 
This was some of the most destructive and bloodiest race-related violence to ever occur, resulting in over 100 deaths and 2,000 injuries. And lastly, let's take Abraham Lincoln. Let's look at a quote of his from the New York Tribune in August of 1862, and you let me know what you think. My paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union, and is not either to save or to destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union. And what I forbear, I forbear because I do not believe it would help to save the Union. So when we hear all of those things about how much Abraham Lincoln cared for black people, uh, you know, take quotes like that into account. By the time April 1865 came, all you could hear in the streets of Richmond, Virginia, were the jubilant cheers of black folks in the street. The Union had won the war and made it to Richmond. Jefferson Davis and his people had fled. Many of the rich white families in Richmond had lost their fortunes and now they're slaves. And overall, 620,000 men had lost their lives. But the important thing is, at least the right side had won. And we always hear that it is because of this man or that man or Lincoln, but we never really talk about how the black men and women who fought, spied, nursed, and risked their lives so that the future generations of black Americans could live lives without persecution. Albeit, it took us a while to get there, and some would say we still aren't fully there. But damn, we have come a long way. After the war, Thomas McNiven sailed off into the sunset, and not much is known about his post-war whereabouts. Wilson Bowser might have died rather young. He suffered injuries during the war when he was conscripted to serve in a United States Colored Troops Regiment. And Elizabeth Van Loo actually got an open thank you from General Ulysses S. Grant. She was appointed postmaster of Richmond and employed black folk and paid them equal wages. She spent the rest of her life ostracized by white Southerners and broke because she spent most of her family's fortune on espionage during the war. She died in September of 1900 and was inducted into the Military Intelligence Hall of Fame in 1993. After the war, Mary Bowser began to slowly fade into the shadows. She supposedly went on to teach free black women. She gave lectures in the North about her life and wartime activities. And while doing all of this, she used pseudonyms to protect her identity, like Richmonia Richards and Richmonia St. Pierre. And using her birth name, Mary Jane Richards, she founded a freeman's school in Georgia around 1867. She eventually remarried, and that is about it. And that's all we really know about Mary Bowser. That's all we really know about the little black girl born into slavery, freed, gone to Philadelphia to educate herself. And in all of her freedom, every black person's dream at that time, she made the conscious decision to risk her life, go back down south during the middle of the Civil War, basically put herself back into slavery so that she could do her part in making sure that the institution of slavery could die forever. And I wish there was more, but using documentation in our imagination, she left behind just enough for us to tell her story. And I think peace. that's what she wanted. If you like this episode of the Redacted History Podcast, be sure to leave a like, rating, or review on the respective podcast player that you're listening on. I truly appreciate it. 